Hey, grateful you guys are with us today. You guys are the brave, all right? It's, it's madness out there. We've had a couple of February days where it's been a little crazy. So uh, grateful you guys uh, have chosen to be with us today. The reality is we live in a country with a ton of options. And uh, you didn't have to choose to be with us today, but you chose this option, and we're grateful for that. Uh, I love the options in America. I do. I, I love that we have so many choices uh, at our disposal. Uh, Every day that we, we have the choice to actually wake up and, and wear a variety of different clothes, like, that didn't happen a couple hundred years ago. Like, you had maybe one or two pairs of clothing, and you were just gross. Like, that was the stinky age of life, all right? Uh, I, I don't even know how they washed all those clothes in time, but, like, that's, it was just kind of a gross period of life. Uh, I, I don't, we don't have to deal with that, okay? Uh, and, I've, in fact, like, I let, the, like, my laundry pile up and pile up and pile up because I just have a lot of options, okay? Like, we got options with shoes, we got options with pants, we, we have options with food, too. Like, anybody, like, amen on the options with food? Yes. Like, we're not dealing with, like, Farmer McCall, who's down the street, and, like, that's the only food option we got. We got Hannaford's, Shaw's, Market Basket, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's. Can I get an amen for Trader Joe's? Love the Trader Joe's. Okay, like, man, when I say those options, like, you know the options that you guys pick. Because, like, we're, we're a, you know, we're a label kind of people. Like, we've got our brands that we love. We just love the options in America. And there's just something great about the options in America. But as good as options can be, sometimes they can be a curse. You know what I'm talking about. When you hit the restaurant that has way too many options, and you're like, what do I choose? You know what I'm, like, I don't know if you've been there, but like sometimes I'll, I'll sit down to these restaurants, and, and like restaurant time doesn't come around all that often for me. So when Charity and I finally go to a restaurant, we're like, man, we can't blow restaurant day, okay? Like, it's just, should I get the burger? Should I get the soup? Should I get the salad? Should I get the chicken finger? Like, what am I going to do? You know, you don't want to blow that moment. And the worst, most paralyzing uh, food experience for me is Cheesecake Factory. Anybody been to Cheesecake Cake Factory. You know what I'm talking about? They've got 20 pages with about 3,000 different food options. I know some people who actually literally have a panic attack when they go to the Cheesecake Factory because the options are so myriad, okay? Like, it's just paralyzing. <clears throat> so, why do I mention all of that? <laughs> like, why did he mention all that? All right, that's a total side note. No, just kidding. Um, so today we're actually, we're going to be exploring one of the, uh, one of, like an additional objection to Christianity. We're in a series called God on Trial, where we're exploring some of the major questions and some of the big objections to Christianity, and we want to do it in an authentic, truthful way. Uh, and one of the objections out there is, how can you insist that there's only one way when there's so many religious options out there? And we look at the consumerism that we have in America and we assume because of all the options that we have, the plethora of options, there's got to be uh, the same principle that applies to religion. In fact, some have said that claiming to have only one way to God or one faith that's right over everyone else is maybe what leads to a lot of the hatred and the violence and the division in this world. In fact, uh, Oprah Winfrey, uh, Winfrey once said, one of the biggest mistakes humans can make is to believe that there is only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. And in America, this is just a really common thought. You've probably heard this before. Anybody, anybody heard similar sentiments to this? Yeah, it's, it's very common. Uh, I mean, America has been described as the world's great marketplace for ideas. And if it's a great marketplace for ideas, maybe all these ideas are created equal and it's just a matter of picking and choosing what you like, you know, out of the preferences that you have. Here's the problem with this. For those of us who claim to say that we follow Jesus Christ, we have to deal with some of the claims that he made that were radical 
and exclusive. This is, these are some of the things he said. In John 14, 6, it's recorded that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. There is no path to God except through me. And one of Jesus' earliest followers, the Apostle Paul, uh, said it this way. He said, look, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel, a good news about Jesus, other than what you accepted, let him be under God's curse. These guys radically believe something in the first century about an exclusive truth to Jesus Christ that really goes directly in the face of a lot of the messages that we hear right now in the 21st century in America. And the question for us who say that we follow Jesus is, what do we do with this? What do we do with some of these these things that are held in tension here. So again, we're, we're walking through this series called God on Trial, and I've been really excited about this. This is the first time that I've been walking through some of these major objections publicly like this for years and years and years. I've loved to grapple with this and to look at the truth and examine the evidence on my own. I love that, but it's a little bit out of the norm to do this on a Sunday morning. Usually we just open up the Word of God and start working through it to help us understand who God is and how to live with Him. But one of the reasons that I wanted to do this series, uh, well, well uh, there's three really big reasons reasons that I wanted to do this series. One was to examine these objections uh, to Christianity, which there are a lot of, uh, in a really truthful and honest and respectful way. I really believe that the conversation between people who follow Jesus and people who don't follow Jesus has some really big gaps, and, and what we need to do is we need to start bridging those gaps and helping people to have these honest conversations together uh, in a way that they're not right now. And I, so in that sense, I want to level the playing field to let Christians examine their own life at a deeper level. And I want to give uh, legitimacy to a lot of the questions that these, these people from outside of the church are asking because they're legitimate questions. And so let's kind of level the playing field and examine these objections in a really truthful and honest way. Second, I want to challenge us today at a pastoral level with some of these objections to the exclusivity of Christ. What does that mean for us and how do we take that? Because I think there's something that we need to learn from every one of these objections as followers of Jesus and how we relate to the world around us. It's really important. Finally, what I want to do is I want to present a case for Jesus' superiority. Because I believe with everything in me that Jesus, there's something about Jesus that is so radically different from every, every other worldview, every other religion, anything else that you can buy into. This is my journey. I want you to examine it truthfully for yourself, but I want to make a case for that. Before I do, let's pray, and then we'll dive into it together. God, again, thank you so much for this incredible opportunity that we have to be here together, to, to take a time out in the week and and talk about some questions that are just honestly not talked about very often. Thank you, God, that we get to do this in an authentic and truthful way. And uh, my prayer today is that, God, you just use the words that, uh, that you've been pouring over me this past week and the past month and years of my life to help us wrestle with this at a deeper level. And I pray even more than my words, God, that your Holy Spirit would be the one to teach us and guide us and lead us in a life so that we might see you for who you really are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I'm going to walk through a number of objections. We'll see how much time we have today. Uh, and I don't even have a timer back there. And that is a bad news deal for you guys, okay? All right, so objection number one. Here's, here's where we're going to start. Uh, religion is the problem. Religion is the problem. And what we need to do is we need to uh, either outlaw religion or help religion devolve. Because religion is a crutch 
that a lot of people have turned to to kind of help them through life. And we need to uh, really kind of help that devolve out of our sphere of living. And the reason people say this in objection one is that they claim that exclusive beliefs uh, also have some sort of a superiority complex to them. That when people say, I believe in the truth over and against everything else, it makes them feel superior. I've got the truth, you don't. And when I have the truth, then when I live up to that truth, necessarily I'm going to look at everyone else and say, man, you're not living up to that truth. And it puts this big dividing wall at best and at worst leads to a lot of abuse and oppression and uh, even some hatred and war. And we've seen that, haven't we? I mean, some people will look back at the Crusades and, and, and say, man, isn't that evidence? That religion is at the heart of some of the worst evil in this world? To look at the Inquisitions and say, look, I mean, thousands and thousands of people. I mean, it's, it's estimated that 1.7 million were killed in the Crusades. And in the Inquisition, hundreds of thousands also died there too. And maybe some of you have experienced abuse at the hands of religion. I mean, maybe it, it goes as simple as this. I mean, maybe some of you are going through a really hard time in life. You lost a loved one. And some religious person came up to you and said, oh, don't worry about it. God works all things for the good of those who love him. And just kind of slip some sort of a, you know, some sort of a, a scripture thing in there to just kind of put a bandaid over something that's really a deep wound. I remember growing up, there's a, there's a church just around the corner um, that actually had a girl in their, their youth group who got pregnant. Out of wedlock, teenage pregnancy. And this is what the church did in response to that. They brought the girl up on a Sunday morning publicly humiliated her in front of everybody and made her apologize to the whole church. In a moment where they, she needed their help more than ever, they pulled her up on the stage and publicly humiliated her. Is it possible that religion has done a lot to abuse others? This might sound strange to you guys coming from a pastor, but I actually agree that a lot of evil in the world that has occurred has come at the hands of religious activities. I agree with that. And I agree with the fact that a lot of people who say that they're a part of religion do actually uh, develop some sort of a superiority complex over other people that can lead to a lot of division and hurt. And I think as Christians, we need to own some of that. We need to own in our own hearts that we've felt superior over others at times. And we need to own the fact that, man, like church history is riddled with some abuse. I think it would do the world some good for us to be able to own that. But here's two factors to, to say that religion is not the problem. Number one, religion's not going away. We can't expect it to just devolve. In the past 100 years where the Enlightenment and scientific evidence is on the rise, Christianity and religion is also on the rise. Some people would expect this is just going to evolve out, but it's not. In fact, uh, uh, over, over the past 100 years, for, in Africa alone, it's gone from 9% Christian to 55% Christian. In Korea, it's gone from 1% to about 45% Christian. And it's estimated that China right now is about to do the exact same thing in the next couple of decades. There's a massive movement of people that are starting to follow Jesus in ways that they have never done before. So religion is not going away. And th this is one of the wild things for me. Even in America where we, we treasure intellect and scientific evidence and all that. And hopefully a couple of weeks ago, you guys we were able to work through this, that science and faith are really not opposed to each other. They're complementary. Uh, but a lot of people that I talk to are not straying away from spirituality. They're actually running towards it. A lot of people are saying, maybe I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. 
Faith is not going away anytime soon. And this is one of the most, this is the second part. Uh, This is one of the most ironic things about the 20th century. The people who said that religion is the worst and we need to outlaw it were some of the people who did the worst atrocities known in the history of the world. This is what Alistair McGrath said. The 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history, that the greatest intolerance and violence of that century were practiced by those who believed that religion caused intolerance and violence. How do we know? Two examples. Communist Russia and Communist China. Totaled two regimes that tried to outlaw religion 100%. The total deaths just between the two of those add up to well over 100 million people. The two regimes that try to operate without any religion and outlaw it altogether are responsible for more deaths than any other religion uh, in the previous 19 centuries after Jesus combined. In 1900 years, religions killed far less people than those two regimes in just 100 years. And so the really important thing for us on this one is to know that religion itself is not the problem. Religion itself is not the problem. It's what we do with it that can be the problem. So, some people will say, well, let's just get rid of the arrogance. Let's get rid of the arrogance and the exclusive claims of of these religions. And let's just say that all religions see just part. Maybe they see part of the whole. And if we could just get all these religions to kind of agree with each other, that they see just parts of, you know, the whole, then maybe we'll all get along and we'll have a lot more peace. Uh, Maybe you guys have seen this illustration before. You can go ahead and throw up the elephant illustration there. Uh, This is uh, is very commonly illustrated by this elephant thing. And uh, essentially what they're saying is that you had all these blind guys that came up to the elephant. And uh, they're all blind. They can't see. But they all came up to a different part of the elephant. And they're all describing it in a very different way. So you got this guy who comes up to the tail. And he's blind. He's trying to feel around. What is this thing? And he says, oh, it's kind of like a rope, you know. It's a little thin. It's, and this, this guy on the, on the leg says, no, 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 no. Like he puts his arms around this, this leg and he goes, no, no, it's a tree. It's massive. It's, it's burly. It's rough. And some guy says, no, 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 no. It's, it's actually smooth. It's kind of like a spear when he tus- touches the, tru- the tusks. So essentially you get the picture here. What they're describing is that all these different religions, they only see a part of this because it's a lot bigger than that. Except there's one massive problem to this illustration. The one massive problem to this illustration is that the person describing this whole scene is the only person who can see the entire picture. Leslie Newbingen, it was a missionary to China, or to India, and he got this illustration thrown at him over and over and over again, that how can you claim Christianity is the only way uh, when maybe it's a whole bunch of different divergent paths that kind of see different aspects of it. And he got it thrown at him so many times that at one point it dawned on him. The only way that someone can even articulate this kind of a vision is if they arrogantly claim to see the entire elephant. He said, this is used to invalidate all claims to discern the truth. It is, in fact, itself an arrogant claim to be a kind of knowledge which is superior to all others. We have to ask, what is the absolute vantage ground from which you claim to be able to relativize all absolute claims these different scriptures make? Do you get the idea there? It doesn't matter what you articulate about the reality of life, all of us 
come with exclusive truth claims. And if your exclusive truth claim is that all religions are basically the same and they all see just a part of the bigger picture, what you're doing is you're excluding everyone else who does not believe that way. (laughs) You see, we all claim to have a reality, a vision of reality that is at one point exclusive for one group or another. It's almost like... uh, uh, and this is, this is crazy, but I mean, maybe some of you have experienced this, but you train your kids to, to play well in sports. Uh, and so you, you, you train them like, this is how you win. This is how you be a better athlete. And you bring them out on the sports field and they compete with a whole bunch of other kids in a tournament fashion. And then at the very end, someone comes up to all the kids and says, hey, you're all winners. And gives all the kids like these gold medals. Like, you're all winners. You're like, wait, wait a minute. Wasn't I just training my kid how to win at a soccer game? Like, you can't tell me the kid has his shorts on backwards picking daisies in the field. Like, that's not a winner. That kid's not winning. He's got his shoes on backwards, you know? Like, not every kid can win. And when you say that every kid wins, really you're saying is no kid wins. And what it is, is it's an exclusive claim on reality to say that all religions just see part of it that excludes everyone else who does not believe that way. Objection three. Some people will say, well, religious belief is really, it can't be really true, objectively true. It's too culturally and historically conditioned to be truth. In, in other words, you just, you're a Christian because you grew up in America. If you grew up in the Middle East, it'd be a totally different story. You'd probably believe, you know, Islam or Judaism or some sort of other religion. You, you are culturally and historically conditioned to believe the way that you believe. I mean, has anybody ever come up to you and be like, you know, why do you believe what you believe? And this is probably where the rub uh, meets us, when, when the rubber meets the road. When some people are asking, like, there's, there's no way that, you know, you can claim that Christianity is superior to all others because you just grew up in America. And, you know, maybe some of us would be tempted to be like, yeah, well, I guess I was just raised this way, and I guess that's why I believe this. But here's why that is a, a massive assumption that can't really be true. First, it really doesn't tell us anything. <laughs> It just tells us where you grew up. But it doesn't say anything about the truth that you claim to have. Second, uh, this is crazy, but 55% of people in America, and this is in a a study that was done in in 2008, 55% of people in America actually changed their religious affiliation. And if you change, if 55%, the majority of people in America change their religious affiliation, not to one thing, but a variety of different things, How does that give us any indication that we're historically or or culturally conditioned to believe one thing? And then the final thought on this objection, that's really the nail in the coffin for this one, is if you're telling me that we're historically and, and culturally conditioned to believe certain things, then how am I supposed to believe what you just said? What if the assertion you just made that we're historically and culturally conditioned is itself a truth claim that you can't verify because someone had culturally conditioned you to believe that. So it can't stand up to its own logic for someone to assert that kind of a statement there. Here's here's the reality, guys. So many things are lobbied at us on a daily basis that really force us out of doing the hard work of examining the truth for yourself. Jesus said that you shall know the truth And the truth will set you free. We can't just naively and blindly say things like, well, it's just historically and culturally conditioned. You can't know truth. 
Because what it does is it actually kicks you out of the hard conversations and out of examining something for yourself to really dig at it and know whether or not it's true. It's lazy and it's ignorant. And I know you guys are better than that. I've had some incredible conversations with you guys. And I know that you're smarter than that, than to just believe, you know, naively, like, you know, well, we, who's to know in, in, you know, the first place what's true and what's not? I feel like it's a ploy a lot of the time to get away from the conversation and do the hard work of actually uh, digging into it ourselves. Now, is it true that we are sometimes culturally conditioned in certain ways? Man, absolutely. And, and it's actually one of the reasons we started this church to begin with. Because when, when we dreamed about starting a church on movement with Jesus, we did not want to just follow the blueprint of what church looked like in all across America— we, didn't, we were not interested in cultural Christianity. We were interested in Jesus and actually exploring the real truth of what he was all about. And for some of us who were there in the vision nights that we had last, or two summers ago, one of the things that we, we, we said to people is like, we, what we want to do right now is we want to deconstruct all of the cultural views that we have about church and what it means to be a Christian, deconstruct all of that and reconstruct it based on who Jesus is. It's hard to do, and sometimes the voices that are, are loudest in our culture are the ones that are dominating our attention in our life, but we wanted to do the hard work of saying, who is this Jesus? And what is he really all about? And how do we start living the way that he lived and believing the things that he claims? So we do need to do the hard work of getting ourselves out of cultural stuff and actually examining truth for truth itself. All right, objection number four, and we're going to have to work quickly because we just don't have a ton of time today. Uh, But uh, maybe you've heard this before. Hey, religion's fine for you. That's fine. But please don't force it on me. And if we're going to talk about things that actually matter, can we please leave religion out of that discussion? Religion is supposed to be private, not a public thing. This was actually popularized by uh, the philosopher Richard Rorty, who said that religious beliefs are the great conversation stopper. (laughs) When you think about, like, public issues and and talking about things that that matter at a political realm, he said, man, as soon as you start introducing religion into this, that's where things get crazy. So, So this is what he said. In the public sphere, religious beliefs are divisive and time consuming. Religion based positions are seen as sectarian and controversial, while secular reasoning for moral positions are seen as universal and available to all. In other words, he said, we got to get to the pragmatic things. Let's just deal with the practical and not the unprovable, you know, un, un, uh, you know, philosophically true, like, you know, let's get out of the cloud and let's just get to concrete things. So he, he argued, let's just be practical. There's a couple of problems with this. And look, I'm just, I'm presenting you my journey with this. You guys can wrestle with it on your own, but this is what makes sense to me. For one, to say that religion is the great conversation stopper is to stop the conversation. Isn't it defeating its own purpose? Man, when we're talking about collaborating at a, at a practical level to be able to work together and dialogue with people about things that really matter, to say that one viewpoint doesn't matter is itself a conversation stopper. And we've already learned some of the evils of what happens when you try to eliminate that. You know, you, you talk about regimes like Russia and China, trying to eliminate some of that religious conversation. Man, you're just going to lead to more hatred and more division. Second, It's a grand assumption to say that we can even have practical conversations about anything without some sort of a faith position. 
And so what we have to ask ourselves is, what is religion? What is real religion? And a lot of people will say, well, you know, it's, it's the thing that you, you just go to once a week, and you, you put on these weird clothes, and you say weird things, you sing weird things, and, you know, you, you believe weird texts, and that's religion. Actually not true. How all of those practices started with certain assumptions about reality that all of us wrestle with. There are four main questions that go into every worldview that all of us need to wrestle with, and this is really what lies at the heart of all religions. The number one question is, uh, where did we come from? Origin. Where did we originate? What does it mean to be human? How do we discern our meaning in life? What went wrong with the world? In other words, how do we discern right and wrong? And then what is the solution? Where are we headed? What's the destiny in all of this? And uh, uh, this was super helpful for me. Pastor Tim Keller brought it to a real practical level. And he said, when you're having public discussions at any level, it necessarily involves some sort of faith-based position. So take divorce laws, for example. You can't have a divorce law conversation without some sort of a faith position. Now, in America, we've got a radically individualistic approach to life, and we say that the, the real ultimate goal for you as an individual is the pursuit of happiness. And so if it's really all about you and your pursuit of happiness, then what we're going to do when we approach divorce laws is we're going to make divorce laws about as easy as possible. So you can get out of one marriage that's not satisfying you and get into a new one. Whereas very traditional cultures that value not the individual over the family, but the family over the individual— from a faith-based position, they're going to say, no, no, we're going to make divorce laws really hard because we believe in the, the community aspect here and, and the community is more important. The, the traditional values here, those are more important. And so divorce laws are going to be really difficult because we don't want the individual happiness to supersede the, the cultural and the, the, the communal happiness. It doesn't matter where you come from. Every one of us have a faith-based position. You cannot enter a public conversation about anything without having some sort of a prior assumption, religiously faith-based, about the grand questions of life. And Pastor Tim Keller put it this way. He said, even the most secular pragmatists come to the table with deep commitments and a narrative account of what it means to be human. Now, this is crazy. We talk about not wanting to convert other people. It's like, hey, believe whatever you want to believe, but don't force it on me. This is, this is a real story uh, about a guy named uh, Mark Lilla. He's a professor at the University of Chicago reflecting on his own attitude about one of his students who actually started really loving Jesus and wanting to surrender his life to Jesus. This is what he writes. As he was reflecting on this moment with this kid, he said, I wanted to cast doubt on the step that this student of mine was about to take. To help him see that there are other ways to live, other ways to seek knowledge, love, and even self-transformation. I wanted to convince him his dignity depended upon maintaining a free, skeptical attitude towards doctrine. I wanted, in other words, to save him. And then he reflects on his own life and on this whole position. He says, look, doubt is like faith has to be learned. It's a skill. (laughs) But the curious thing about skepticism is that its adherents, ancient and modern, have so often been proselytizers. In reading them, I've often wanted to ask, why do you care? Their skepticism offers no good answer to that question, and I don't have one for myself. In other words, no matter what you believe, all of us are trying to win each other over towards those beliefs. And for those of you who say, man, you can't claim to have your own belief, I think you see part 
in that moment, you were arguing for a worldview and trying to convert people to that. So we can't get away from the fact that all of us have an exclusive worldview and all of us are trying to win each other over to that. The big question is, what is true? What is true? Last objection, and then we've really got to motor through this. All major religions are valid and teach essentially the same thing. It's kind of a variation from the one before. Uh, but they're, they're like, man, we just got to look past the differences and see like all of us basically, we, we believe the same thing. Maybe we, we look a little different on the outside, but at our core level, we believe the same thing. And it's actually the exact opposite. At a surface level, we may do some similar things, like we meet in houses of worship, we have sacred texts, you know, we, maybe we wear some weird clothes, except for us here at the well, which I'm super glad about. Uh, maybe in about a hundred years, everyone is going to be like, that was wacky what they wore back in 2018. Uh, but at a core level, the various beliefs, the major religions out in the world actually not only believe different, they, they believe in contradictory and opposing views. That cannot coincide together. Now, like, to, to say that all forms of religion are valid, you'd have to also say that those who practice child sacrifice are also valid. Or how about Jim Jones, who led 900 people away from the United States down to uh, Guatana uh, in uh, South, Afri- South America, uh, and actually, uh, like, convinced all of them that the best way to live is to escape this world by drinking poison and somehow intermingling with God. And no joke, like 900 people committed mass suicide together based on his religious teachings, including just about 300 kids. To say that all forms of religion are valid, you'd have to say yes to those too. And if at the core level, all of us in, inside us says, no, those are not valid, then the big question is, well, which religions are valid and which ones are not at that point? Which ones are you going to pick and which ones are you not going to pick? Again, at a core level, what we teach is radically different from each other. This actually happened this week, okay? Charity was out in the front yard, uh, and as she's playing with the kids in the front yard, uh, this lady, this middle-aged lady, walks by on the street, and they start engaging in conversation. She goes, oh, you got a couple girls? And Charity's like, yeah, pretty cool, huh? And, uh, and they, they ended up having this brief conversation, and in the middle of it, this lady says, yeah, I got uh, my son, and I'm so excited to have this son. In fact, uh, I, he's actually my grandfather reincarnated. And I'm really excited to help him on his journey uh, towards a better life. And Charity's like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, tell me more. And, uh, and she goes, yeah, he, he's my grandfather. He looks just like him, you know, talks just like him. And I know that he's reincarnated because I'm a Hindu and that's what we believe. And uh, we believe that um, you get reincarnated as many times as it takes for you to get perfect. And once you've been perfect, then you kind of go to be one with the Brahmin. And she's like, wow, that sounds exhausting. Uh, what I believe actually is that we can't be perfect, that none of us are perfect, and that's why I lean on Jesus, because Jesus paid it all for me when I had no chance. And I, I believe that his sacrifice is sufficient for me to get connected back to God. She goes, no, 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 no. You have to work hard, and you've got to work as hard as you can to get perfect, because if we do not do that, then we will not be perfect, and we're never going to be right with God. Now, if all forms of religion basically teach the same thing, then you'd have to include two radically contradictory and opposing worldviews. Those two can't coincide. You can't work 
to get to God and be perfect in order to get to God and also believe that Jesus paid it all. You cannot believe that God is an all-loving, personal God who entered into human experience in the person of Jesus Christ and also believe in, in the fact that God is not impersonal, or not personal, he's an impersonal force like Buddhism. Buddhism, actually, the, the ultimate goal for Buddhism is to eliminate all desire whatsoever. Now, this is wild, but... Uh, um, the apologist Ravi Zacharias actually describes this moment where he had a conversation with uh, the first Buddhist monk priest uh, that was a woman. And uh, uh, he had this conversation with her, and she's describing what life as a Buddhist monk is like, and he realizes that she's married and she has kids. And he goes, wow, like, what is that like for you? Like, how, how do you live with a whole bunch of kids when you're just living at the temple all day long? And... Uh, He's like, do, do you love your kids? And at that moment, she actually started crying. And she said, this is the hardest part about my life. You know, I'm separated from everyone living in a Buddhist temple. And every day that I, I try to, to drive back and visit my kids for a brief minute or two, but then I need to go back. And he said, so you're telling me basically your goal in life is to try to eliminate all desire for your kids. And that's the goal. And she just went dead silent at that point. You cannot say that all forms of religion are valid and basically teach the same things when they're radically contradictory and opposing views. Now, the hardest part about all of this for us, I think a lot of the claims that we have to say that all religions are the same, they basically teach the same thing, they're all valid, they see just part of the truth, and nobody can claim one exclusive truth over another, I think ultimately what it is, it's avoiding the conversation because it's just too hard. And we don't want to deal with it because of the implications, the radical implications for our life. But friends, I believe that Jesus has something greater for us in all of this. I believe that Jesus is the ultimate one who has come to not only tell us about truth, but to embody truth and connect us personally to the one who's given, given everything for us. And this is why I believe that Jesus is superior. Number one, the Bible teaches that God made all of us, all human beings, in the image of God. Meaning that every human being is valuable. In and of themselves, they are valuable. God made them valuable because he loves every single one of us. That's what the Christian worldview says. And I just believe some ideas are better than others. I believe that God infusing his image of God into every one of us is a powerful idea that ultimately sets us free. And it frees us as Christians even to be able to cooperate with those of other faiths for the good of our of our world, because um, if we're all made in the image of God, then we are no better than they are. Absolutely not. And at that point, man, we can listen to other people and we can cooperate and love with each other so that we can build a better world. I believe that the, the, uh, the worldview of Christianity does that. The second thing that I, I think Christianity is superior from all others is really in the person of Jesus himself. And this is where it changes everything. Every single world religion out there will tell you this is the ladder that you need to climb in order to get approved before God. These are the things that you need to do in order to attain nirvana or Brahman or whatever God is out there. This is what you need to do. And it's exhausting. But Jesus came for us. 
and entered into human experience to do what we could not do for ourselves in order to connect us before a holy God. If all other religions could be spelled do, D-O, Christianity can be spelled done, D-O-N-E. Because it was not about what we have to do, but about what Jesus has done for us. <clears throat> and this, this is, for me, what separates it all, okay? C.S. Lewis puts it this way, and we'll kind of wrap it up this way. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, I could not believe Christianity if I were forced to say that there were a thousand religions in the world of which 999 were pure nonsense and the thousandth fortunately true. My conversion largely depended on recognizing Christianity as the completion, the actualization of something that had never been wholly absent from the mind of man. There are bits of pieces of truth in every one of these other world religions that does connect to Christianity, but only in Christianity do we find the ultimate fulfillment of all of them. Because Jesus has done for us what we could not do on our own. And so in this, Christianity is actually, against what a lot of popular people say, one of the most inclusive worldviews that you could ever have. Because instead of saying, here's the perfect perfection that you need to attain, which nobody can... Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, I will not cast him out. Instead of us trying to attain a God, Jesus came to us. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He came to us, not expecting us to come to him. And he said, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. All it takes is a radical faith in Jesus. That's it. It's not a thousand things you need to do. You just need to trust him and believe that he came for you. So this is my challenge to us. If you want to know more about this, we don't have a ton of time for it, but read 1 John chapter 4. In it, it talks about us testing the spirits because not every spirit is saying the same thing. We are believers. There are false prophets in this world, and there are things that are said that are just not true, and not all ideas are created equal. And it also talks about that there are some that will speak from the viewpoint of the world, and we need to examine that. Do the hard work. Do the hard work of examining truth for yourself. And finally, we know what truth is, not because we've come up with it and manufactured it on our own, but because God came to us in the person of Jesus. We love because he first loved us. And that's why Christianity is superior to everything else. Man, in this, let's let that drive us to humility and not being superior to others, but learning to listen and learning to be humble and learning to cooperate with other people in this world because Jesus did for us what we could not do. And in that, we have no room to be superior to anyone else. We believe in a Savior who loves us. And we need to offer that hope to the rest of the world around us. Let's pray. God, my hope today is that you would help us to not be combative in truth, but to be explorers with humility. My hope today, God, is that you would reveal more of your heart for us 